0: You're visiting with us. We have been in the Psalms this summer, and we come this morning uh, to Psalm 42. We obviously are not doing all the Psalms. Uh, we would have been 24 <laughs> seven together <laughs> to try to do that, but we are doing some highlights. And we've come to chapters 42 and 43. These two Psalms uh, should be taken together. Uh, even though they're separated in our English Bible. And you will see in verse 5, verses 5 and 11 of 42, and then the last verse of 43, a refrain which binds these two psalms together. The opening passage is one of those... uh, Memorable and one of the most famous statements in all of the Psalms. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, enable us to believe in your grace afresh. Lord, enable us through what you've revealed to us in this psalm to pour out our hearts honestly and openly to you to fully discharge before your presence our true condition, our real fears and sadness and brokenness and grief. Enable us, Lord, to be ever honest before our great God because we believe you to be the God of loving kindness. We believe you to be our refuge and our rock. And we call ourselves, as this psalmist does, to hope in God. Lord, bless us that our self-talk will be like this self-talk. Honest, open before you, and yet calling ourselves away from the precipice of despair, ever to hope in our great God. Especially we, in this context of the New Testament and the coming of Christ. For as the writer says, we have a greater hope founded on greater promises. All that has been done for us in Christ Jesus, O Lord, encourage us in Him For we pray it for your glory. Amen. One of the things that this psalm does for us initially, and I want to just introduce this idea, is it shows us how important it is to just be in turmoil in the presence of God. And what's interesting about this psalm, as opposed to Psalm 22 that we dealt with last week, ...or two weeks ago, because Psalm 22 begins with similar questions... ...and it explores maybe even more painfully the difficulty that the psalmist was facing. But it ends either envisioning the deliverance or having experienced the deliverance. And it envisions or then begins to rejoice of being with the people of God... ...and worshiping with the people of God... And that worship breaks out to influence the whole world. So, as we said a couple of weeks ago, it begins with painful questioning of God. It ends with the good news of God spreading throughout the whole world. Pretty remarkable journey in Psalm 22. This one is more in a circle, right? Just keep circling back. Hope in God. Hope in God. But then... Again, it talks about the difficulties. Hope in God, hope in God. Then again, he talks about his difficulties. And then he ends, hope in God, which kind of has the feel they hadn't quite gotten there yet. You know? The, the, here's the last phrase, a crying out, a wrestling with his soul. Hope in God. Don't be in despair. This encourages us that, as we said a couple weeks ago, also about Psalm 88, we read the ending of 88, I think it was two weeks ago, where it just ends flat darkness, right? This one, not so much, but you might say it's kind of in between. Instead of the glorious transformation of the world or this dark black thing of everything's lost, it's kind of the wrestling of being in between. But I hope all of these psalms, and, and I hope it will encourage you to explore the psalms more fully and realize every frame of mind that you could ever have is pictured somewhere in the psalms. And the psalms again and again discover you, right? They discover you. Sometimes they discover where you won't go and where you need to go. They discover your perhaps lack of honesty with God lack of openness with God, lack of freedom to, to be feel so accepted in Christ Jesus. You can tell him anything and everything. So we will, uh, explore these two Psalms with, uh, three uh, headings. First, his hunger for God, then his honesty with God. And then finally his hope in God. So, uh, his his hunger for God, his honesty with God, his hope in God. His hunger for God. Now, I want to say at the outset, a hunger for God can't... Uh, uh, say a true hunger for God can't be separated from a true knowledge of God. Because you might ask the question... What are you hungry for? That's a common question in our, I, I really, growing up, I kind of eat anything, right? Just, it didn't matter, whatever's on the food, I mean, and I love everything. I love all kinds of food. But when I married Kay, she was always hungry for something, you know? Like, let's go get a pizza. Well, I'm not hungry for pizza. Yeah, I'm always hungry for pizza, you know? <laughs> or hamburgers, or whatever, you know? It doesn't matter, just put something in front of me. Uh, but she's taught me a lot of, you know, uh, to eat different things at different times, and and so there are times where I think I'm hungry for a salad. I'm hungry for, it. well, he's hungry for the true and living God because he knows the true and living God. It's the God we have a phrase that we just used in our uh, questions that we ask our new members. Do you rest in Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel? Not your idea of Jesus, a Jesus you would make up, a Jesus concocted to fit your needs or fit this or that, whatever. My idea of Jesus. No, Christ as he's presented, the Jesus, not a Jesus, the Jesus. So he hungers for the living God. We are made for God. We are made to live in relationship with God. Apart from that, we are amputated from our life. If, if somebody, I'm reading, I just started a book about a man who died of uh, cancer. It was, he's a, he was a resident uh, in neurosurgery and began having a rapid weight loss of 30 pounds over a fairly quick period. That's a very dangerous sign. Every life insurance questionnaire asks, have you had a rapid weight loss that's not related to diet or exercise? What would we see in each other if we saw a loss of appetite and a loss of spiritual weight because we've lost our hunger, our hunger for God? You see, his agony... The greatest agony he has is not so much the things he's suffering around him. It's that he doesn't have God. He doesn't, he doesn't know the presence of God. So whatever loss he has, he does not lose this. He has his hunger for God. God. So, this is emphatically not an expression of his rejection of God or his disrespect toward God. Again and again, he expresses his love for God and his passion for God in this uh, passage. His admiration for God. He expresses his dependence on God. He calls him my rock, the God in whom I take refuge. He calls him my salvation three times. That's his dependence. Upon this God, you're my salvation. To you, I pour out my soul. So he's he's entirely dependent upon this God. God is his happiness. He says, you're my exceeding joy. I have no joy outside of you. God is his very life. He says, God of my life in 42 verse 8. And he's convinced of God's care and love for him. He calls him my God. I have a relationship with you. I, I know that I'm cared for by you. He says, day and night, your steadfast love and song are with me. You see, he, he admires and trusts in God's love. And so one a commentator says this, even though absent from God, how present God is in this psalm. The word God is used 22 times. So he feels absent from God, but he can't stop thinking about God. When Kay and I first started dating, she was in her hometown, Louisville. I was in Jackson, Mississippi, two hours away. I even composed a song about being away from her and constantly thinking about her and wondering what she's doing, wondering what she's thinking, wondering who she's talking to, wondering what kind of clothes she's wearing. I just couldn't get her off my mind. Constantly thinking. And then even now, if she's gone, I'll think I'm going to do this or that that night. And then I just feel out of sorts, it's not right that her little precious self is not there with me. I feel lost in some ways. So God may be absent, but he's present to his desire, his longing. <laughs> another says, God is omnipresent in a psalm that complains of his absence. Yeah, right? And another one says, "Schaefer, uh, the pain of separation is a way of feeling the presence of God. See, the pain of separation. It's, it's what C.S. Lewis speaks of in the grief of the loss of a loved one. it tells you how much you love God that person. It tells you what you had with that person. At least in your pain is a kind of upside down celebration of the goodness of the relationship you have. Because if you didn't have a precious relationship, there'd be relief, (laughs) not pain and not grief. And so there's this kind of sweet difficulty in being away from God and yet not having and, and yet longing for God, so he begins this uh, famous these famous words as a deer pants for flowing streams and this isn 't just a deer uh, you know getting his daily drink of water, but it 's the picture of the arid areas where you may be hard to find that water, and this deer is very, very thirsty, looking for that water and it 's Just like that deer, I pant for you, my soul thirsts for you. And then it's accented by, when shall I come and appear before God? And so when he says, my soul, he's saying my inner person, which is a way of saying my whole person. One translator has this, my whole person strains for you. Everything in me strains and aches for you. And we have to ask, do I long for God like that? And here's, here's something a bit different, but we're going to underscore how important it is. His his worship of God is so closely associated with the temple. You can see that in this uh, passage as he says, uh, I want to appear before God in verse 2, but then you realize in verse 4 what that means. I remember how I'd go at the throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and a multitude-keeping festival. So he's thinking of being in the presence of God and the worship of God's people. And later in Verse 6, he describes the, you might say, the, ge- the geography of his absence because he is uh, far away in the land of Jordan and Hermon. He's, he's really at the headwaters of the Jordan here. And, and so those headwaters, as they pour over rocks and create waterfalls, and as the waters are formed in the mountains, uh, this becomes another part of his, his metaphor. But He says then in chapter 43, uh, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And so he he wants to bring his whole person to the temple. I got to get to Jerusalem. I got to get to the temple because that's where God manifests his presence. Now, that's different for us in that we are the temple of God and even individually we're the temple of God. But I want to talk about the corporate part that is very similar. A longing for the concrete manifestation of God with the people of God. Very similar important that we understand this. Because we tend to have an atomized, atoms I'm thinking, atomized Christianity. All about personal quiet times and personal prayer. Church life can be sometimes a little add-on, right? It augments the real life I have that's just between God and me. Reinforced by such hymns as I go to the garden, and then it's got that phrase: "None other has ever known." We're all singing that together, you know. Yeah, none other, You know, <laughs> I just love that. You know, we're all kind of—you hadn't known this like I had. Well, you hadn't known it like I have. You know, I know that's not what they're thinking, but that's what I always hear when I hear that song: "None other has ever known." <clears throat> And I hope that bothers you the next time you hear this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you see, uh, we'll think the corporate life is good, but it's not central. That's not the attitude of the Psalms. And it's not the attitude of the New Testament. Corporate life is essential to the people of God. It's vital to us. His presence is associated with public worship. And there's the sense in coming to be with the people of God where God manifests himself and longing for that and missing it when you can't have it. Aching to be with God's people and to be with God himself. There's so many statements in the New Testament that, that underscore this, this concrete expression of God's presence in worship. And here's an important aspect of that that we saw a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 22. Remember where it says there, uh, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And the writer of Hebrews says, this speaks of Christ. As the resurrected Christ dwelling among his people with the Holy Spirit, he says, I will worship you among my brothers. It's a startling statement of his humanity. (laughs) It's startling that as the new and perfect uh, human being, he takes his place among his worshipers and leads us in the worship of God. You want to be with Christ? Christ? Where does he say he is? Where does he say he's joyfully present with his people? Right? He is there leading us in worship. And to absent yourself from the people of God is to absent yourself from Christ and what he is doing in this world and leading his people in worship. He calls them there, his brothers and sisters, <clears throat> Brethren, and that includes everybody. You're, you're get, you get to be called brothers too in this. They're co-heirs, of course. And so if we want to be with Christ, he's among his people. If we don't take his people seriously, we don't take Christ seriously. If we don't participate in the life of his people, we do not participate in a fundamental way in the life of Christ. And so in the New Testament, uh, it is the church as a whole that is indwelled by the Spirit of God. And that's where the Spirit manifests His glory. That's why there was a misunderstanding of this passage in 1 Corinthians 3.16 where it says in that passage, uh, you are a dwelling place of God. If anybody destroy the temple, God will destroy him. And so there was this teaching that... If you destroy your body in suicide, then God's going to destroy you. That's where the doctrine came from. But it was a misreading of the passage. It's not singular, each one of you. It's y'all, as we say in Alabama and a lot of people here in Texas, right? The Spirit dwells in y'all together corporately. And again and again in Scripture, it talks about the dwelling place of the people of God. He's preparing a holy temple forever. It's through the church as a whole, Paul says in Ephesians 3, that he will manifest even to the angels in all creation his wisdom. You don't want to absent yourself from the place where God is going to manifest his wisdom to the angels? And Paul says, it's together with all the saints that the Spirit works in our hearts. So that we know the, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's not apart from Christ in monkdom. yeah. It's not off by yourself. It's cut off from the people of God. Just you and God doing your thing. And not that God doesn't meet us in every way possible. Alone or corporately. But Paul is saying... Together with his people, in the midst of his people, we will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I don't want to miss that. And so I must not miss being with you. And then even Ephesians 4.13, when he's talking about the church, he says, we'll all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. He uses that phrase now. Our translation is to mature manhood. But literally it says, we will be a mature person together. Together. You know, the Marines, no man left behind. That's the New Testament. No believer left behind. We're holding on to each other as we move forward corporately with Christ. And so Paul can say, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. You don't want to take lightly. You don't want to have the least possible relationship to that body that Christ cherishes. He cherishes. And I'll have to say this, just to be honest, you need to at least ask this question. If your lack of desire to be with the people of God and participate in the life of the people of God is not an indicator of your lack of desire for God. Your lack of desire or or hunger for God even. If it's just like, Give me as little as possible. Let me get out of here. I'll be back next week, if if that. Of course, there are exceptions. The church has betrayed people's trust. It can be a part of rampant gossip, pride, and greed, and immorality that's been openly and purposely ignored. Or the manipulation and mistreatment by leadership, tyrannical authority, dishonesty and hypocrisy of leadership. Yes, there are many reasons and many things that sadly have occurred in the church. But, hear what Jesus says, Matthew 25. In the judgment day, you did it to the least of these. You did it to me. Think how personal that is. You're going across the room to meet somebody you've never met before and you're a little scared of it. Jesus says, "You do that for them, you're doing it for me. You ignore them, you're ignoring me. That's how personal it is for Christ. Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, him who sent me. Whoever receives such a child in my name, receives me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. On and on. Jesus constantly put himself. I, I use this illustration sometimes with uh, husbands. And it could be wives too, but we need it more than wives too, I think. But, um, <clears throat> so we, we tend to want to think, I'm going to bypass my responsibility to my wife. And I'm just going to have this neat relationship with Jesus. And I always encourage them to think, no, Jesus is right behind her and connected with her. And there's no way for you as a husband to get to Jesus apart from getting to your wife. No way. And if you avoid her. Avoid loving her. Avoid sacrificing and giving to her. You're avoiding Jesus because that's what he calls you to be and do. And he is bound up in that. It's the same way with us as the people of God. You can't think, I'm going to avoid this difficult, that hard thing. No, Jesus is in our midst. And he treats each one of you. And the way I deal with each one of you and the way you deal with each other as how you're dealing with him. So we just cannot separate this out. So we may want to think, um, well, this has to do with the temple and the central location of the worship, but I think, if anything, it's even more intense now. Because see, the people you're coming to be a part of they have the spirit of god dwelling in them they have the spirit as john says that will flow from them with living waters do you want to be absent from those people <laughs> or do you want to be around those people and give yourself to those people listen to john this is 1 john 3:14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The brothers are the believers, the brothers and sisters that are in Christ. That's how we know that we have passed from death into life because we begin to have this love for the brothers. It is in community that you change it is in community that you measure change and see change that you discover change change with God always results in change with others well we'll be out by one I'm sure (laughs) I know what everybody's thinking anyway um let me just mention these two points. I don't apologize uh, for spending that long on such a critical uh, issue. But the second point, that just to underscore, not only uh, his, uh, not only this uh, this uh, pouring out of his himself to God, his and and this hunger and aching for God, but but his, also his honesty with God. He, he talks very openly, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Uh, verse 3, my tears have been my food. My diet is tears. Or in other words, instead of eating, all I do is cry. My soul is cast down. And then his adversaries are jumping in uh, to, to pile on the pain. Where's your God? Scornful questioning. Uh, twice he, he mentions it in this passage. Uh, they may be like Job's friends. What have you done that God would leave you alone? You must have done something. So accusations coming to him. And his situation is a kind of mockery almost from God. Because he's longing for refreshing waters. But instead he's weeping watery tears. And he's drowning in death's water. (laughs) Yeah, he has water all right. He asked God to send water, but it's the water of destruction. He want, God is his life, but now it looks like God is his death. His footing is gone. Wave after wave is submerging him. We, uh, Early in our marriage, we were in a canoe with some other friends, and our canoe capsized, and I was able to come up immediately, but Kay describes rolling in the water and losing track of what direction she was supposed to go even to get up. And really thinking at that moment, I'm not going to make it. She did. (laughs) That's what he's describing. I'm rolling in the waters. I can't find air. Your waters have submerged me. And so that noisy throng is now instead become these noisy waters. The roar of waterfalls and breakers breaking over me. And the memory of my past joys just green. Bring greater pain, I think of a man in Korea uh, in sub zero weather his extremities are half numb and he 's hurt he hurts when he moves, and yet his group is pinned down, and he 's got probably twenty four hours to live he 's just in utter miser- misery waiting to die, and he thinks of being in that warm bed with his wife, you know just thinking what that was like and how safe it was and how wonderful it was to hold her close but not now that's his feel you see the the comfort and warmth of being with god but now he's cut off from this but isn't it interesting that he calls them your breakers he's the god of loving kindness he's the god who attends him he's his rock he's his refuge and yet, though God doesn't promote wrong in any way, he's not in league with sin, he doesn't tempt us to sin, nothing occurs apart from his governing will. And this is hard, but it's our only comfort. It's our only comfort. I've described it in this way. Sometimes I felt like I'm on a conveyor belt and there's a buzzsaw and I'm headed toward the buzzsaw and I can't get off and the buzz saw is God. Honestly, (laughs) he's going to kill me, but I have nowhere else to go. I have nowhere else to go but to trust in this glorious God. So take comfort that the breakers that are falling over your head, even if it is coming from the mistreatment and abuse from another person, connect the dots like the psalmist and says, ultimately... They're your breakers. Ultimately, they're your breakers. That gives me hope. Because the hand that has brought these or allowed these is the hand that was crucified for me. It's even more intense for us because his loving kindness has now been manifested in the person of Christ. And that person of Christ is the one ruling the world. He's the one ruling all things. All authority is under him, under the crucified Christ. What comfort for us this can be. As we even then cry, why? When shall I appear? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go in mourning because of my enemies? I want to encourage you that these kind of questions are questions of faith. (laughs) And not at times to ask these questions could be unbelief. It could be, yeah, I figure you wouldn't anyway. Rather than, wait a minute, you're the gods who committed to me. You're, you're the Christ who died for me. I don't get this. I don't understand it. Our Lord Jesus cried, why? As a perfect man, he cried, why? And so we are encouraged to do the same. And yet, three times, as we said, he cries out to his own soul, right? Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? And he encourages himself to hope again in God. So though there is this honesty, this recognition of God's sovereignty and God's presence and the aching for God, he also is guarding himself against despair. And so must we. So while we're honest and open and we cry out and we tell him so bluntly what is happening in our lives and how we feel and how we even feel abandoned, we say to ourselves, hope in God. And for you and me, all the more in the resurrection of Christ do we have hope, ultimate hope of the redemption of this whole world in Christ Jesus And that all things now are moving toward that redemption. The most important debate that goes on in the world is this debate in these three different verses. To argue with yourself. A kind of self-communing as one described it. So that we are calling ourselves to believe in the promises of God. We are calling to mind the accomplishments of Christ for us. And we keep bringing those promises and bringing the accomplishment of Christ to bear in our lives. To support us and guard us from ultimate despair, even as it sounds like from our cry, we are in despair. <laughs> Why? When? <laughs> Almost sounds like, hey, I think he's given up. Oh, he hasn't given up. He's just totally honest and expecting. The why and the when are expectant. He is not giving up on God. He expects God to be a gracious God in that final day. And so he calls himself to hope in God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us... uh, you would give us this, this kind of attitude toward you. Lord, that you would constantly give us a hunger for you and a hunger that manifests itself particularly in our desire to be with your people and to be worshiping you and to see you reveal yourself to us in worship. Lord, we, we pray that you would enliven our worship and our fellowship and our ministry, that we would continually taste of your goodness With your people. Enable us not to be dull to that, to be ignorant of it, to refuse it, but to expect the manifestation of God in the temple that is his people. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be so honest with you and yet to hope in you, that, Lord, while we fully unveil, unburden our hearts to you. And Lord, even ask you these questions that we even then, and even because of that, and as a part of that honest questioning, it will enable us to walk the path of greater and greater hope in all that Christ Jesus is doing for us. Bless us, Lord, with real, real relationships with you. Amen.